So as some of you know, I actually forget exactly what I talked about last time. Um, I'm, you know, very in the moment, so I, all that stuff. It's strange, actually. Could you say that someone with Alzheimer's is very in the moment? Because they just don't really know what's, they don't have any past, they're just kind of always here. Strange, right? Yeah. In a way. Some, oh, because they think that this is like 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. A deluded moment. Or they're, or they're very much in the moment and then they're gone. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. I used to work with all um, So, I was a Buddhist monk for eight years. I lived in a monastery in Germany. We meditated every morning at 5.30, um, and every night at 8, and then... <clears throat> What's that? Um, depends. So, um, different times of the year, we would kind of do things differently. Um, sometimes half hour, sometimes hour. Um, and then we also had many kind of different teachers come in and guide us in meditation and kind of teach us just about life. And, also, you know, we lived with our Zen master who really worked on integrating the practice into our daily lives, right? So it wasn't just about sitting in meditation, but I'm from the Linshi lineage. Um, so the Japanese is called Rinzai. And Linshi was this, um, hundreds of years ago teacher. And he was one of those guys that would walk around, you know, with like a stick and kind of hit people with that stick to teach them things. So... <coughs> That's kind of what I got. I never got hit with a stick. My teacher did punch me, though, before. But um, it was to teach me something. But he would more use his words. He would more use his words and his way of interacting with you to really kind of hit you, to hit your emotions, to hit your mind, to, to get you to wake up and kind of see what you were doing. <clears throat> um, so that's one way to kind of stay in the present moment, right, is to have a... Zen master riding behind you, slapping you with words, yeah. with a stick. Some would call that abuse also. It goes both ways. Um, but I also had the chance to, to meet many great teachers, and they would come to the monastery also and give teacher teachings. Um, so, so Tibetan monks, Vietnamese monks, you know, monks from Burma, from Thailand. So really a lot of these wonderful teachers. And then also I you know, spent the next couple of years after leaving the monastery also traveling and being in India and Australia and also going to different monasteries and meeting more teachers. And, um, so I have, I guess what I would call a very well-rounded Buddhist education. I practice with a lot of different traditions of monks um, and nuns. And I really work to integrate those teachings and understand them in a deep way. And since coming back, I feel that I've done a lot of kind of removing the form, the, the Buddhist form from what I teach, but still really talking to, to the essence of, of what I was taught and what I've practiced and embodied as well. And that's also what allows me that I teach in schools now. So I teach students and I teach teachers in public schools. Um, and I don't get kicked out for teaching religion in the classroom, right? Because there's nothing religious about relaxing and kind of finding a healthy way to be alive, to be here in this life. 
so I could say that you know, nothing that I'm saying, nothing that I teach is any different than what a Buddhist monk would tell you. But I just don't talk about it in that context. I talk about it just in relationship to daily life. Um, <clears throat> so when people begin the practice of meditation, one of the things that they start to realize is that their mind is completely out of control. That I think a lot of people actually come to meditation because their mind is completely out of control and maybe they've realized that already and that's why they're here. And a lot of people only when they sit down and start practicing does that become clear. Um, I would sometimes give the example, it's like if you're stirring a pot of water in the dark and then you kind of turn on the lights, you see suddenly that all that water is moving. Um, and then even if you pull out the stirrer, that water keeps moving. So it's kind of like that in meditation, right? We're very busy, we're busy, busy, busy all day, so we're kind of stirring up the mind all day long. And then when we sit down to meditate, it's like we're turning on that light inside, we're really looking at what's going on there. And then everything is still spinning around. And even though you've stopped, even though you're like, hey, I'm just sitting here meditating, you know, I'm innocent, you know, the mind is still spinning around. <clears throat> so I think the first thing to realize is that nobody's innocent, um, is that when you look at your mind and you see what your mind is doing, that's because you are stirring it. You know, whatever is moving in your mind, that's, you're just witnessing the momentum that you've been creating all day long through your daily life. So if you sit to meditate and your mind is really busy, it's really messy, it's really loud, that's saying to you that the way you live your daily life is in such a way that your relationship to your mind is creating that. Like I said before, that's called karma, right? That's the, that's the effect that we're, that we're getting from what we've created. That's cause and effect. Um, I forget exactly what the point was today, but I, I had a memory, and it was something of a conversation I was having with my mother. Um, oh, yeah. So my father, my father right now, um, he has ALS, so he's sick, and he's kind of, you know, getting weaker. And so it's kind of this thing that we're all, you know, our family's holding together, holding the space. And, um, and I was away for, you know, about a decade. So um, I spoke to my mom about it, and she said, you know, she, she's like, I'm, I feel terrible that you've been away for 10 years, that he was okay, and now you're back and he's sick, and, you know, you missed this time that you could have had with him. Um, and I understand what she's saying, and also a part of me really wanted to hit her with that Zen master stick, you know? Because in any moment, in any moment, in any situation, there's an infinite of different ways to look at that situation, to relate to it, to understand it. And they're all equally valid. Um, I personally feel that it's really great that I was able to take those 10 years to do what I had to do for my life, to gain the knowledge and the skills, to come back here and now also support my family. So for me, I feel like, wow, I've been like riding this wave of perfect timing, kind of. You know, I feel like I'm really doing well. And with this situation, when I reflected on what my mother said, I kind of felt there's so many ways to think about this situation. 
Um, you can look at that situation and say, oh, it's too bad that you've been gone and now he's sick and now you're back. You could look at it and say, oh, it's really great that you came back now when your family needs you. You know, you could also look at the situation in a completely different way and just say, yeah, this is really hard for all of us. You could look at it in a very different way and say this is really great because it's bringing us together in a way that we've never felt close before. And all of these ways of looking at the situation are equally true. And there's really an infinite number of ways you could relate to a situation. So what we do, however, is we usually take a single point of view, a single relationship, and we hold that, and then that's our way of relating to the situation. So for my mom, her relationship to it is a feeling of, oh, this is too bad, almost like a regret or like a, a, a bad feeling towards it. My connection to the situation is, wow, I'm really great that I kind of found what I needed for myself and came home in time to really support the family when they need me. So my connection to it, as much as it can be, it's a positive thing. I feel really good that I'm here for this time. And what I think we as people don't realize is that we have a choice how we relate to situations. And... Um, there's a lot of people that love to hold on to situations in a way that makes them feel sad. There's a lot of people that hold on to situations that they feel everything's unfair. Like I have Facebook, right? And on Facebook, you could post anything you want. So there's a lot of people, and their way of using their newsfeed on Facebook is just to post about how bad Trump is, just like nonstop things about the president, right? Then there's other people that use the Facebook just to post about this inspiring thing that happened in their life. You know, other people post pictures of their dog or you know, themselves sitting at the beach or something. Um, but what we don't realize and what we don't look at is that we can choose how we relate to a situation. And that choice can also be based on, is my way of relating to this situation helpful? Or is my way of relating to this situation harmful? When I look at the situation with my family, I would say the way that my mother relates to the situation is harmful because she's holding on to a viewpoint that causes her pain, that causes her pain and remorse and heaviness and sadness and a kind of like, yeah, this heavy regret kind of feeling. The way that I'm relating to that situation brings a feeling of upliftment, of energy, of inspiration, of really deep connection. Neither one of us is more right than the other one. They're both equally valid points. But you can choose which of those viewpoints you want to take, or if you want to even take a different viewpoint. So you can actually choose how you want to relate to your life, how you want to respond to life in a way that it's actually beneficial for you, that it allows you to move forward, that it allows you to feel good. Um, and this is something that we're blind to mostly. We don't realize that we're actually in control of our belief system, that we're in control of, of how we relate and respond to things. So if we're relating to our life in a way that everything that comes we really try to take it as an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to grow, you know, a, a test to, to make yourself stronger or more clear or more loving or more kind. Um, 
you're going to sit down and you're going to meditate and you're going to really feel blissed out. You're going to feel really peaceful because you've been connecting to your life in a way that's been feeding you energy, that's been feeding you joy, that's been feeding you kind of this open expansiveness and you're going to sit and you're going to be sitting in that positive power. If you relate to life in a way that things are kind of heavy, that things are chaotic, that you see all the problems, that you, know, you only look at your imperfections, you're going to sit down to meditate and that's the stuff that's going to be coming up is that, that heaviness and that discontentment. And, and that's also the fuel that the mind uses to keep running. Because a happy, content mind doesn't go anywhere, right? When you're sitting at the beach, when you're sitting in the sun, when you're somewhere, when you feel happy and content, everything's fine. Um, there's a story that I heard. It's called The Story of the Wishing Game. And it's five children sat down and they played a game and they said, we're going to see who can make the best wish. Um, this was told to me by my teacher, Achan Brahm, one of my teachers, yeah. And he said, so the first boy sat down and he said, I want the new Nintendo Wii. That's what I want, the Nintendo. And the second girl is like, okay, that's pretty good. I want the whole video game store. Yeah, so that's a better wish. Why well, just get the game? You could have the whole store. I want the whole store. Yeah, then it was time for the third girl. She said, okay, that's pretty good. I want a billion dollars and I'm going to buy the whole mall and then I can live there, and then with the remaining money, I'm going to also buy a university and give myself a degree. So I could really just live at the mall for the rest of my life. Yeah? So she's like, how about that? Okay, so then the fourth girl went, and she said, okay, that's pretty good. I'm going to wish for three wishes. For my first wish, I'm going to wish for a billion dollars. For my second wish, I'm going to wish for the mall. And for my third wish, I'm going to wish for three more wishes. That way, I can continue wishing forever. Try to beat that. So the pressure's on in the wishing game. Yeah. So it comes down to the last child, this boy sitting there. And the way the story was told to me. And that boy's name was the Buddha. Yeah. And the Buddha came up with a wish that beat an infinity of getting your wishes fulfilled. And the Buddha said, I wish to be so content that I never have to wish for anything ever again. And he won the wishing game. <clears throat> so the goal that we're aiming for, the goal that we're aiming for is actually that place of contentment that's sitting in the middle. Right? So I meet with a mother, she's a good friend of mine, and I was doing meditation for her kids, and they're in middle school. And she said, uh, her son, he, uh, he plays baseball, he's in middle school, he plays baseball. And he threw a bad game, and he was really upset, and he was saying you know, how he's a failure, and how bad he is at all of this stuff. And, you know, and that's why nobody likes him, because he can't do well. You know, so really, he was just saying all the stuff, being hard on himself, hard on himself, hard on himself. And she asked me what she can do. And I said, well, if you look at that situation, he's setting a bar for himself that's up here. And he's trying to, and that's called being good, or that's called success, or that's called, you know, whatever it is. And he tries to reach that bar. And when he can't reach that bar, he feels like a failure. 
What he doesn't realize is that he's the one setting the bar. He's setting his own bar. He thinks that that's the bar. He thinks that that's, I have to get over that to be successful, to be liked in school, to feel like I did a good job. But that's his own bar. He could, even, he could set his bar lower. He could say, you know what, the fact that I got out there and played a game of baseball, that's enough. And he could be happy with just that. Yeah. So this is something that a lot of us do, is that we set bars, and we don't realize that that bar is being set by us. I once heard a story that said Denmark was the happiest country in the world because they have the lowest expectations. Yeah. Because when you put your bar down, there's no problem anymore. You know, even for somebody to say, like, I'm having trouble meditating, where's your bar? Like, I would say it's good enough that you sat to meditate. You know, because, and because this is the trick, this is the, the mind hack, if you will. Because when you set your bar low, and you're happy that you even are sitting to meditate, you stop trying. You stop thinking there's something wrong. You stop feeling like you need to get another wish fulfilled. I need my mind to calm down. You instead just become content, and contentment is already the goal. And when you're content, the mind will already by itself calm down. So this is kind of the trick in meditation, is that you're not supposed to be aiming for anything. The more that you aim for something, the farther off you're going to be from the mark. So the same teacher, Achim Brahm, he then taught me a mantra that I used in Australia. And this was the mantra that started me off on this kind of path, on this momentum to really having some of the best meditations I've ever had, or the best string of meditations I've ever had. For, I was there for three months, and I would just be sitting for hours and hours and hours, and it would just be whew, huge. And the mantra he taught me is to two-word mantra. That mantra was good enough. And I would literally, literally sit in meditation. I would sit down in my little hut in Australia. I would sit down and I would close my eyes and I would say in my head, good enough. I'd say, good enough. You're sitting, it's good enough. You know? Oh, but I can't, it's good enough, it's fine. Yeah, but my leg hurts, it's fine, it's good. At least you have a leg, it's fine, it's good enough. This meditation's not going to work. Yeah, it's okay. It's good enough. It's fine. Then have a not working meditation. Great. You know. But I have all these thoughts. Oh, yeah, you know, thoughts are great. You know, I love having thoughts. Let's see how many thoughts you can have in an hour. Keep thinking. Oh, I love my thoughts. They're fine. Good enough. You know, anything that comes up, you, you respond to it with love. You respond to it with acceptance. You respond to it with softness and patience and tolerance. Yeah, that you become softer, your connection, the way that you're choosing to relate, whether it's you're relating to the way that your mind is going, you're relating to your thoughts, you're relating to your meditation, or the way that you're relating to your life, to your, the customers or the clients or the people that you're talking to out there, your, your boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband, children, friends. The way that you start relating starts to slowly also be infused with this kind of understanding and this wisdom that you start treating things also with this softness, with this openness, with this peace, with this allowance, you know? Because suddenly if you're good enough, if what I'm doing is good enough, 
I'm good enough, it's fine, it's good enough, it's fine, it's okay. You know, suddenly I'm okay. And if I'm okay, then actually everyone else is okay too, right? Then all of a sudden my judgments start falling away as well on other people. And you kind of realize everybody's okay, everyone's trying their best. And you start to soften, you start to become more open, more loving, more kind, more gentle. And that also starts to infuse itself into your life. And that's part of that bridge. So when you're meditating, you're kind of in here, just kind of you and the mind. And when the mind starts, you know, it starts softening, it starts opening, it starts feeling more relaxed, you, you start creating new, um, new mechanisms. Yeah, so Herb Benson, he was a doctor at Harvard, he came out with a study and it's called the relaxation response. And he realized that the average person, their way of dealing with stress is to go into fight or flight mode, right? Something comes up, you either have to fight against it or you try to get away from it, try to destroy it. And he said, but he did extensive studies with meditators and he found that they've, they created a third response and it's called the relaxation response. So if you want, you can go online and read about this. But he's saying that if a, stress, a stressor comes into the, the mind of a meditator, because they've trained so much in that internal world, that in the external world, when a stressor comes up, they know how to say, ah, oh, yeah, I know what that is. And they know how to change their relationship to that stressor, to soften around it, to accept it, to let it go, and then to be more present, because they know what it feels like to be stressed, and they know what it feels like to release stress. So anytime stress comes into their mind, into their life, they've trained themselves just to release it right away. Yeah. They've trained themselves really to learn how to just release stress as a natural response. If they feel their shoulders getting tight, their natural response is to release their shoulders. Right? This relaxation response. So the more that we can train that, the more that we can practice it here in this room, the more when you go back into your lives, out of this room, you know, the more that you can start bringing that, that into your surroundings, and that starts creating more space. And when you have more space, like I was saying before, this changes your ability to respond, because people that respond, it's usually because they don't feel like they have any space. That's why people, they blurt stuff out, they freak out, you know, violence. It's because they don't feel like they have any space, so they just react. But when you feel like you have space, suddenly you can start to choose. You can start to look at these feelings. You know, you don't punch people in the face anymore. Instead, you say, I'm angry. And then even you could take a step back from that and say, I feel anger. You know, so it's not even like I am anger, but it's that there's this, I'm here and right now anger has come up. Like, oh, I feel angry, you know. And then you could start to look at that, talk about that, find new ways to deal with that, right? So as, as counterintuitive or counterproductive as it might sound, if you're meditating and if you're having trouble meditating, which includes staying in the present moment and just being here, and you, it's just the relationship to being in that contented, open mindset, as kind of counterintuitive as it is, no matter what results you're getting, tell yourself you're doing great. Yeah? Whatever the result is that comes in, say, yeah, that's good. If you notice that your mind is racing, great. Awesome, my mind is racing today. Cool. And you'll start generating a positive energy 
that the mind will start wanting to sit and soak it. So sometimes I say it's like a cat. If a cat, a stray cat comes to your back door and you open the door and you kick the cat, it's going to leave and never come back. Right? If you put out some milk, it's going to stay. And if you bring the milk inside, then it'll start to come in. And suddenly that cat will really come back to you again and again because you're giving it love and kindness. So the mind is the same way. If the mind is racing and you're fighting with your mind, if you're trying to hammer your mind out, if you're trying to get the mind to stay still, if you have expectations, goals, pressure on the mind, it, you're never going to get there because it's always going to be this battle to get it the way that you want it. Because that's a result-based way of thinking. This is where us Westerners, we love result-based thinking, right? So you have a headache, you take this pill, try to get the results, not look at, oh, maybe I have a headache because I'm dehydrated. Maybe I need to drink water. Or maybe my neck is tense, maybe I need to stretch, right? We just want to get rid of the symptom, right? Or the way that we farm, right? Or forestry, right? Just throw chemicals and poisons everywhere just to grow the plant so I can eat it, right? We, we go right for getting the results that we want and not realizing that things have a process that have repercussions. Yeah. So for meditation, the result-based way to meditate is to sit, to have a restless mind, and to be kind of hammering away at the mind trying to get it to stop. And it'll never get you there in a sustainable kind of way. So the way to do it, it's condition-based. How does the mind come to that peace all by itself? Right? I'm not forcing my mind to be quiet. I'm not holding my mind in one spot. I'm not pushing. But I'm feeding it the right conditions that it'll stop all by itself. Right? So I'm not taking the pill to get rid of the headache. I'm drinking the water. right? Because that's the real cause of my headache is my dehydration. So I'm drinking the water and the headache goes away by itself. If your mind is racing and you want that mind to stop racing, the conditions you have to feed it, as I was saying, contentment. Love, kindness. Give the mind a reason to stay. Yeah. Which also means allowing it to be crazy. Let the mind be as crazy as it wants, and when it comes back, say, you're doing great, mind. Keep going. And it'll run away and be crazy and come back, and you can say, wow, you're the best mind ever. And you give that mind enough love. You give it enough acceptance, and eventually it's going to get bored of being out there, and it's going to come back and really enjoy being with you because you just love it no matter what it does. Yeah? And that's really the secret to meditating, is feeding the mind the right conditions, that it wants to stay. Okay, so unfortunately, right, can't push it. And more unfortunately for some of us, meditation is more feeling than it is thinking. You actually have to feel your way into meditation. So for some of us that don't have good feeling contact, that's, that's the challenge. You have to feel your way into it. Yeah. It's okay. So with that impulse, we'll now have um, a full structure of sitting, walking, sitting. So I'll guide us through the practice and kind of deepen gradually the place that we're at until we leave here and hopefully by the time we leave we'll really be in a place where we're
better off than when we came in. And um, yeah, I think also because I've talked so much now, maybe for the rest of the class I won't even talk. So maybe it's kind of starting from now, we'll just go into the practice and we'll just do some sitting, some walking, some sitting. And then at the very end of class, if anybody has anything that they want to share, they can.